chapter 13. Some of you might have been expecting chapter 12 if you remember what we talked about this morning, talking about spiritual gifts. And I did let you know that we're going to talk about the abuse of spiritual gifts. You can't help but go to Corinthians to find an abuse of a lot of different things. They were misdirected uh, and had wrong thinking about several different, but before we, really we're not even going to look at the gifts tonight, but I want to kind of give an overview. As we talk about being committed to the local church and, and you know, we started talking about being committed to Christ, you can't help but be committed to the local church if you're going to be committed to Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the institution, the organism that he has given to reach the world, and in that, he wants us to be a part of what he's doing. So that is why I spent all morning this morning talking about how to utilize your spiritual gift. Find out what it is, use it for the glory of God, and then uh, minister more effectively because of that. But I also realize there is a lot of incorrect and wrong thinking about spiritual gifts. And you can go through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and look at a word of knowledge and healing and, and, and tongues and all these different things and, and really think that that must be where real spirituality is at. Now I realize I'm talking to a group of independent fundamental Baptists. Many of you have spent your life growing up in church and you know that's not right. But I'm going to tell you what you think about the passage I'm going to give you in just a little bit is very important. We're going to get a little technical tonight. I'm not going to try to drag it down into the mud and lose you all, but there is some grammar we have to talk about. There's some uh, words that we're going to have to look at. It's called studying God's Word. All right, And what you believe will ultimately work its way into your life. And so, uh, I want to go back to 1901 for just a few minutes. A group of Bible students were coming together every day early in the morning, uh, but this was New Year's Eve prayer service. Uh, it had been long past midnight, and they were still praying. They were earnestly looking to experience the presence of, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of them desperately hoped for something amazing. You know, prior to this meeting, the last several weeks, the students had been studying, uh, directed by one of the professors, and they were particularly interested in what the apostolic record taught about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to go through that whole thing again. We talked about it just a couple weeks ago. You understand that baptism, you are baptized into the body of Christ as soon as you are born again. But they had a Wesleyan holiness background, and they believed that it was after you were born again. And so they were praying, and... Uh, Really, by the time they gathered for a prayer service on New Year's Day, they had arrived at two very faulty conclusions. Firstly, that speaking in tongues was the sign of spirit baptism. The gift of tongues was still available for them to experience. 
Those were wrong on both accounts. But they had this, this sincerity. And they were pleading with God to be baptized by His Spirit. Their teacher was Charles Fox Parham. And he had encouraged them along these lines. He was a Methodist holiness uh, background. And they were eager to experience the Spirit's power firsthand. Now, I will tell you this. Certainly, you can commend their sincerity. You can commend their earnestness. I'll tell you, we need some young men and women today that want the Holy Ghost power in their lives today. But you must condemn their faulty premise, which you'll find out in just a moment leads to a fatal conclusion. In something in those early morning hours, something extraordinary did happen, happen according to those that were there. One of the students, a young woman named Agnes Osman, asked her teacher to lay hands on her and pray that she would receive the Holy Spirit. What happened next, as one author put it, would change the course of modern church history. This is what Charles Parnham said. He said, I laid my hands upon her and prayed, and I had scarcely completed three dozen sentences when a glory fell upon her, and a halo seemed to surround her head and face. And she began speaking the Chinese language and was unable to speak English for three days. And when she tried to write in English to tell us what she'd experienced, all she could write was Chinese. Osman's experience would be shared by her and the other ones that were there, and it began to, to have an impact on churches uh, in that area. But pretty soon it swept all the way to the West Coast. During a series of revival meetings that followed, more than 20 different languages were reportedly spoken through the Spirit, Spirit's supernatural power. Russian, Japanese, Bulgarian, French, Bohemian, Norwegian, Hungarian, Italian, and Spanish. Charles Parnham himself claimed to speak in Swedish as well as several other languages. I'm going to put a pause on this and, and have you think about this. Compare what this is the origin, by the way, of the modern charismatic movement. Filled with error already. But do you notice that even they recognized initially that tongues was speaking a known language? Moved on to the West Coast. Ultimately, there were some 50,000 people that started following this, and it has grown, and it has grown. And really, it's interesting to me how the emotional aspect has tailored right into the health and wealth prosperity gospel that goes right along with it now. I, I'm not going to take time to go into that tonight. But I, I want you to understand that is the origin of the modern movement of Pentecostalism in, in the, the charismatic uh, movement that we have today. Speaking in tongues, babbling, an unknown language. None of that is taught in the Bible. We're going to look at some verses in 1 Corinthians 13 that tell us very clearly and very plainly that those gifts have passed off the scene. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. 
We know the beginning of chapter 13 is very familiar. It's the love chapter. It's God's definition and and where he expounds on love. But it's interesting to me, as he closes this chapter, it's almost as though he changes gear, but you'll find out he's not changing gears at all. He says, charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. And whether there be tongues, they shall cease. And whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Those are three pretty clear and concise statements. Verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so, there are three gifts here that he states specifically that are going to come to an end. There's going to be an end to prophecies, to tongues, and to knowledge. You know, there's a reason I believe that he chose those three. Those are the three main ones that the church of Corinth was struggling with the most. But he starts off saying that prophecies will fail. The first thing I want you to see tonight is the expiration of the gifts. The expiration of the gifts. You know, in in verse 8 where he says love never fails, he uses the word pipto. It's It's a Greek word. It was used also in Luke 16 verse excuse me, chapter 16, verse 17, where it says, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one little, than one tittle of the law to fail. That word fail is the same word used in 1 Corinthians. It's used of the word of God here uh, in its smallest detail. It's never going to lose its authority. It's never going to have cease to have force. It can also carry the meaning that it's never going to fall away like the, the petals of a withered flower as in James 1.11. Why? Because love is eternal. Why? Because God is love, and, and God is eternal. Love doesn't have seasons of growing and withering. The agape love that God has for mankind is for all ages. But now, Paul's going to transition from that word fail to another word to describe the failure of prophecies. And I believe he's doing this to to draw attention to the differences between love and the gift of prophecy. He now uses the word katagargo, which literally means to reduce in activity. So there's going to come a time, he said, where prophecies would be, I guess in a sense, put out of business. I'm going to close the door, roll up the shop, and, and put the uh, closed sign in the door. Now, I'm going to stretch your English grammar on this. Those of you in high school, don't tune me out. There's different ways that we say things. If I am up to, to bat in a softball game, and I say, I hit the ball, I'm doing the action. And it's easy to tell who's doing the action on that. If, if I were to say the ball was hit, you, you may not be sure who was doing it, but you know what the action was. You may not know the agent, we would say. And, and there's a way to say that the bat hit the ball itself. And, and, and that tells you more directly who the agent is and more focuses on the action. 
You say, where are you going with all this? Well, one is active, one is passive, and one is middle voice. Passive is used on two of these. Okay? And so when it says that, that uh, these prophecies are going to cease, it's in a passive voice. Which Let me just break it down and tell you what that means. That means something is going to cause them to cease. You know what that something is? The agent? God. So God is going to call, cause these foretelling, not foretelling, but foretelling prophecies to cease. Why? Because the, the apostles are no longer going to be around. And when they die, the ability to, to see the future, when John puts down his pen, there's no more prophecy that's going to be written. And God is going to say, that is enough. By the way, he uses the same verb and the same voice to talk about knowledge. So Paul says, whether there be knowledge, it's going to vanish away. Knowledge is, is not knowledge that can be acquired, but that special understanding that is imparted by the Holy Spirit, which enabled the early church to function before the completion of the New Testament. It could be acquired by apostolic instruction. I mean, even Peter recognized that, that Paul's writings were difficult to understand, but they were inspired like the other Scripture. And so it was the ability to know something supernaturally by apostolic instruction apart from complete written revelation. But where it says in chapter 13 that tongues would cease, by the way, I want to just keep reiterating that when you see this word tongues, it's, it's not some un, unknown psychobabble. I was reading a book this week that said that uh, linguists have studied, because there's no shortage of, of recorded material, they've studied these different, what they call glossolia, or, or this, this uttering and babbling from the charismatic movement to detect if there's any kind of language at all. And what they've discovered is there is none. There's no, there's the only thing that's, it sounds like language because the person speaking wants it to sound like a language. But anyways, that's free. You can go look that up yourself if you'd like, but I hope you don't spend too much time listening to that garbage, okay? But Paul said he uses, see, so he uses a different verb and he uses a different voice. Now he does this deliberately under direct verbal inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. The word he uses is pavo, and it means to stop, or, or really it means to come to the end. If you're coming to the end of the journey, you would, you would be this, use this verb. And the time, it's the middle voice used. And so it literally means that tongues will cause themselves to cease. They're automatically going to come to an end. God's not going to, to bring to force or, or bring to bear any force that's going to cause them to stop. They're going to stop in and of themselves. You say, well, what's the big deal? You've got two things that Paul said are going to go by the wayside because God's going to put it to the end. But this one, specifically, God is saying through inspiration that they're just going to, to trail off, in a sense. Well, if we can find out when the prophecies and the knowledge are going to cease, when God's going to stop them, 
then I think we're going to understand that tongues is going to come to an end before that. So, listen, why did God give these gifts, these sign gifts that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Especially these of prophecy, knowledge. Why? Because they have the... the uh, uh, what do they do? They, they impart divine New Testament truth, whereas now we don't need that. We've got God's inspired, infallible word, the Bible. We have God's canon of Scripture. It's available to the entire church. Tongues had to do with the unbelief of the Jewish people, especially the generation which rejected Christ and resisted the Spirit. And Paul, who was writing to the Corinthians and was reminding them that they were making too much commotion over this gift and they were raising themselves up because of it. And in a sense, he's taking a fire hose and drenching them with cold water saying, listen, you've got it all backwards. You've got it all wrong. What he's saying is tongues are simply going to die on the vine. And at that, before God, puts an end to knowledge and prophecy. I want you to see not only the gifts expiration, I want you to see the further explanation. We understand that there was partial knowledge. Look at verse 9, if you will. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. The emphasis here is on that part, in part. And it's repeated three or four times, right, in verses 9 through 12. And so, the best we can imagine is that the early church had to get along with a partial revelation. Not everybody had every letter that was written up to this point. The expression that is translated in part carries with it the idea bit by bit. A piece here and a piece there. And it, it was going to continue that way. Uh, and, and while it was like that, God was giving the supernatural gifts to fill in the blanks so that they could have and be responsible for what God expected from them. Until the New Testament canon was complete, Nobody had access to the full and final revelation that God had given to mankind. That was going to have to wait until the end of the first century, as I mentioned earlier, when John finished writing the book of Revelation. But there was the promise, if you look at chapter 13, verse 10, of that knowledge. But then it says, uh, in verse 10 it says, but, then, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part, that bit by bit, shall be done away. So here's the great controversy in conservatism, uh, conser conservative Christianity. What is that which is perfect? I'm probably going to agree with you on that. I'm going to further explain that. But there are some good men that I would disagree with that would at this point insert the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
and I think for multiple reasons that I'm about to give you, that it cannot be that, and it must be the Word of God. And how you come out on that matters. You say, why is that? Because we have the Word. We have that which is perfect. It's infallible. It's inerrant. And we know that, that we can rely on that. But if you take the position that it's Jesus Christ... His second coming has not come yet, so that means that there's still room to be left open that the tongues and the prophecies and the knowledge is still extant, still with us today. And that is a very dangerous position. I mean, if you read the last three chapters, verses, or, or really chapter 12, 13, and 14, Nowhere in there is he talking about the return of Jesus Christ. The context is about communicating the gospel. He has just given us some things and ways that were used supernaturally to communicate God's will for mankind. Prophecy, the word of knowledge, and tongues. That was proclaiming what God's will for mankind was. And so, in context, you're going to find out in two or three different ways that John keeps referring to those three different ideas as he refers back to it in the latter verses. And so, uh, he's been talking about divine revelation and the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so he majored on the, the gifts and the communication gifts. He said, evidently, that which is perfect, which was to come, has to be explained in light of the immediate context, in particular in the argument of the overall passage in general, uh, one commentator said. And all that's saying is we need to make sure that when we interpret God's word, it's in context. We can't just set it aside and say, what fits my theology? We've got to say, what does the Bible say? And there are, there are some areas where good men can disagree, but I'm kind of adamant about this because it, it, you leave the door open to charismatic... I will tell you, there is a very well-renowned uh, uh, speaker, or, or uh, he, he's not pastoring anymore, who believes that these gifts are still extant. Of course, he baptizes babies as well, but uh, I see young preacher boys still quoting John Piper. Now, he says, I've prayed and, and continue to pray that God would allow me to speak in tongues. I, I'll give this to the man. He has, at least has enough integrity to say he's never actually done it. But when you have somebody that's on the national stage, while well, he says he's never done it, he leaves the door open for all the crazy people and giving Christianity a black eye with those people that are just uttering nonsense. Not only that, but saying that you have to do that to prove that you've been baptized by the Spirit. Do you understand? It matters what you believe. Your theology is important because it's going to work its way out into your life. I mean, there, there are people uh, all over this country, and I believe over the world, that are begging God for something they're never going to get and is going to result in frustration and disappointment, and they're thinking that they're not uh, able to, to, to live for God because they did not have this experience. And so this context has nothing whatsoever to do with the second coming of Christ. It has everything to do with the completion of the New Testament. The word for perfect is uh, telelios. It's derived from the word telos, or the end. 
And it carries the idea of being perfect, that which is mature, whole, or complete. It means, and it carries the idea of reaching the goal. And that's why it's in the neuter gender. And that's where a lot of people struggle. But the goal of the communication gifts was the completion of the New Testament. When the New Testament was completed, there was no need then for the communication gifts. One author said, with the completion of the New Testament and the passing of any need for, uh, excuse me, uh, with the completion of the New Testament and the passing of any need for supernatural phenomena, Christianity became mature. It was no longer adolescent. It was an adult. I like that. Now, the apostles needed gifts of wisdom and knowledge. They needed the sign gifts to give them credibility. Uh, uh, they, they needed uh, the, the ability for supernatural speaking to, to legitimize the message that they had to give to the masses at that point. But even in Acts chapter 2, what did people say? How did they know my language? It wasn't nonsense or gibberish. It wasn't a secret language that only God could understand. I was going to pull out a whole, I've got a whole list of pull quotes of people that believe in it and talk about how ridiculous it is. And just talking about if you have a word just bubbling up inside of you, just, just start saying it over and over again and, and until it comes out and, and then something will follow. Give me one verse where you see that in Scripture. It's nonsense. And so we see that these sign gifts are, are passing away. And not only that, but, but the apostles were passing away. The prophets were passing away. So all we have now are the evangelists and the, uh, the pastors and teachers, or pastor-teachers. Out of all that, the Bible still stands. Peter said that we have a more sure word, a more sure word than hearing God in person as he was at the Mount of Transfiguration. That's a pretty solid testimony for God's written word. So he says that the prophecies, or excuse me, that the, the gifts, there's an exchange of the gifts. He says there's an expiration. He gives an explanation. And then he says there is an exchange. What's the exchange? The exchange is that which is perfect for that which is bit by bit. That knowledge, that prophecy, that tongues, those were only bit by bit. And there is an exchange for that which is perfect, God's holy word. Then he says there's going to be an end. Not only is there an expiration. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not like when I have something in my refrigerator that has an expiration date of two weeks from now, and it's already sour. That's, that's frustrating. What scares me more is when I look in there and I see something that has an expiration date that's about two years away, and I think, I don't know if I want to eat that, right? I'm pretty sure I'm not going to have to have any embalming fluid by the time my time comes to go. I'm going to be well-preserved. But their expiration on that, eventually you're going to throw that milk away when it's bad. There's no need for it. And, and John's about to explain that once you have that which is perfect, there's no longer a need for that bit by bit. He's saying you, you can put it away. Now, 
I can remember my wife and I being married for, I guess it was probably a year, maybe, maybe two years. My mom came out to visit us. And she pulled a trailer behind her truck. And things that I had in my possession when I was in sixth grade was in that trailer. And everything that I'd owned probably since the sixth grade was in that trailer. And she put it in front of our apartment. I don't even think we could put it all in the apartment. I'm like, Mom, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just tired of having all this stuff. I'm like, throw it away. I, you know, it was very nostalgic as I was throwing it away, saying, oh, I remember playing with that one time. But could you imagine if I took those toys into our apartment and started setting each one of those up? started playing with them. We didn't even have kids at this point. No, there comes a time where you put away childish things. And you start dealing with life as an adult. And that's what uh, Paul is getting at here. I want you to notice the corresponding. Look at verse 11 again. He says, when I was a child, I spake as a child. Now, why did he say that? Now, if you take that verse out of context and just put it over here, you, you could seem to think that he's talking about little children that are babbling. Oh, oh, not making a whole lot of sense. It sounds a lot like the charismatic movement, I realize. But he's not just pulling that out. He's not just, this is not a principle to, to grow up. This is, would be a great text, right? To say, listen, you need to move out of your mother's basement and grow up and put away childish things. That's really not the point of the verse. The point of the verse is, tongues are no longer needed. I don't need to speak like a child. That was the bit by bit. Now we're an adult. We have that which is complete. And so I don't need to speak in a foreign language. I can give them the written word of God. That's the difference. So he says that tongues have ceased. Why? Because now we've matured. So he's pointing back to the gift of tongues. Read on. It says, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. What was the other gift? Knowledge. He's saying, we don't have to have the special gift of knowledge. That's passing away. There's going to be a time where it ends altogether, and it's time to grow up. And he says, I thought as a child. I believe that is the gift of prophecy. You understand the gift of prophecy, remember, was God using the voice or the lips of man to uh, uh, give his will. And when we hear preaching, or if in that day would have heard prophecy, it would change our thinking. I often say, I have wrong thinking about that, or you have wrong thinking about that. What does God's word say? You understand? So, so prophesying, as we call it today, or preaching, helps us to have right thinking. So it's not just this idea of being a little child and putting away childish things. What is he saying? He's saying that these gifts that he said are going to come to an end, that God is going to put to the side, that is for immature people of his day. And now we know, because in that passive voice, God moved him off the scene when that which was perfect came. There was no need. And he goes, he finishes it by saying, but when I became a man, when he matured, he put away childish things. 
And it's interesting to me that there's a whole other generation that seems to be picking up the mantle of charismatic teaching and Pentecostalism and emotionalism and, and wanting to have some kind of experience over just understanding clearly what Scripture has taught. You say you seem kind of passionate about it that you take a whole Sunday night service to preach against the modern tongues movement. No, I think it's a lot bigger than that. I think it's the entire holiness, Pentecostal emotionalism that comes along with all those sign gifts that are found in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And if we're going to be a church that is biblical and mature, then we're going to have to take God at His word and believe that He's given us an infallible word, inerrant, holy, and that is preserved for us today. Praise God. We can know what God said. We have His word. We don't need some babbling. We already spent two weeks ago talking about being baptized into the Spirit uh, by, the, by the Spirit of God. Uh, really tells us when the church began. But we can know with a surety that we don't have to fake something or feel left out of something. Listen, you have the Spirit of God indwelling you right now. You'll never get any more of the Spirit than you have at the moment of your salvation. You will spend the rest of your life, I hope, giving more of yourself to Him. That's the key. That's the key. And so when we think about sign gifts, it's exciting to read the book of Acts. That's a book of activity. That's the, it's not the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And in that, we see God do amazing things in this transition. But in the dispensation in which we live, we can be thankful and settled having God's perfect word. When that which is perfect has come. Aren't you glad for the word of God? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word.